everyone. My name is Kiara and I am one of the events coordinator for WUSC at Ontario Tech. Today, we will be talking to two wonderful guest speakers, Jennifer Bing and Jihad Abusalim from the American Friends Service Committee on the Free Palestine hashtag and the current injustices resulting from the Israeli occupation of Palestine. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Please take a moment to briefly tell the audience more about yourselves. Go ahead, Jihad. Sure. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for having us. My name is Jihad Abu Salim. I'm from Palestine, specifically from Gaza. I moved to the U.S. seven years ago to start a Ph.D. program in history at New York University. And in 2018, I moved to Chicago. And shortly after I moved to Chicago, I started working with the American Friends Service Committee's Palestine Activism Program, where I work as the Education and Policy Associate, focusing on doing advocacy work for Palestine in general, specifically on a campaign called Gaza Unlocked. But yeah, I, I grew up in Palestine, in Gaza. Uh, I spent most of my life there. I, I still have family there. And I now have family here in the U.S. So I have, you know, I have connections and roots in both worlds. It's a great pleasure to be with you today. Thanks, Jihad. My name is Jennifer Bing, and I uh, first went to Palestine as a student in the early 1980s and later returned there to be a volunteer teacher um, teaching Palestinian students uh, in the West Bank. And I uh, came back to the United States in 1989 to work on the issue of Palestinian human rights and to try to really change the discourse about um, Palestine. Even at that time, using the word Palestine was very different 30 years ago than it is today. Um, and I, I'm pleased to have been part of a movement um, with the American Friends Service Committee and many others across the country to bring Palestinian voices for people to hear. briefly describe to us the history of this Israeli occupation in Palestine for those who may not be fully aware of this issue. Sure. You know, we hear the words Palestine-Israel a lot, and talking about the situation there has been part of the news and the media and scholarship for a very long time. So it's a little bit challenging to summarize the history, but I'll try my best. So, you know, an area that is located um, in southwestern region of Asia. It's Africa's gate to Asia and Asia's gate to Africa. It's been for thousands of years a place that has been inhabited by many people, many groups, many civilizations. It's perhaps considered one of the places where the earliest instances of human settlement has begun more than 10,000 years ago. Um, so Palestinian history is a mosaic of cultural and human interaction for a very, very long time. Um, Moving fast forward to the modern era, by the beginning of the 20th century, the area of Palestine today that consists of Israel proper, the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, have always been for hundreds of years an Arab country inhabited by a majority Arab population, 
Muslims and Christians who speak Arabic, who belong to a broader region also that embraces Arab culture, Islamic culture, and, and Eastern Christian traditions. And uh, with the, in the beginning of the 20th century, those people who lived in Palestine, as they were trying to seek independence, like neighboring nations and establishing their own state, Jewish people in Europe were uh, undergoing great oppression at the hands of anti-Semitic uh, forces in Europe. And one of the ways that uh, Jewish communities in Europe, this is where things get complicated and tricky, for Jewish communities who also uh, believe that they have a connection to the land, you know, establishing a Jewish majority state in Palestine was not something that can be done uh, easily because the, the country has been inhabited. There's uh, already a population that is rooted culturally, politically, with its institutions, and, so, and so on and so forth. So in the 19th, early 20th century, a movement uh, emerged in Europe called the Zionist movement. And the goal of that movement was to establish a Jewish majority state in Palestine uh, through colonization and settlement. And eventually this political, modern, secular, nationalist movement allied itself with uh, colonial imperialist forces like Great Britain, which, you know, we're talking about a period, the high noon of uh, imperialism and colonialism. You know, we are familiar with the extent to which Britain was colonizing the world in the early 20th century, late 19th century. So eventually Palestine, during World War One, falls under British control, and then the British took upon themselves to facilitate the immigration of uh, Jews from Europe um, and to facilitate the, esta the establishment of institutions, of structures that would favor the Zionist movement uh, and that would eventually lead to the establishment of the State of Israel. The, the destruction of Palestinian society, Palestinian economy, Palestinian politics, and Palestinian culture. Of course, this moment, the birth of the State of Israel, happened at the expense of the Palestinian people. The establishment of the State of Israel was a violent event. It led to uprooting hundreds of thousands of Palestinians whose descendants, millions uh, of them now, live as refugees uh, all over the world. And it led to settlement and colonization, land grab and uh, and violent transformation of the country um, that has been taking decades and has caused so much pain for Palestinians. And it's also worth mentioning here, the idea of establishing a Jewish majority state in Palestine as a solution to the oppression of Jews and to the problem of anti-Semitism was not a matter of consensus amongst Jewish people. So it's still an issue that is debated. It's still an issue that is opposed by uh, communities of faith within the Jewish world. Um, but, you know, in short, it's, it's a story uh, of settler colonialism. It's a story of modern national exclusionary systems that is based on prefer giving preference to one national group at the expense of another um, and based on their ethnicity or religion or language. And of course, the story of Palestine is not only a local story. It's a story that has 
roots in international history. Uh, it's been part of uh, the colonialism era. It's been part of the Cold War era. Um, and it continues until today to be a, a an issue where international players and international uh, forces play an important role. Well, thank you, Jihad, for that excellent encapsulation of informative knowledge to us, like having to understand the history and the current events happening in Palestine right now. It truly is valuable for us audience to know about. You mentioned that in your Palestinian activism program, you had this petition running for Palestinian children. Would you like to speak more about that? Yes, thank you. Um, the No Way to Treat a Child campaign, which is one of the campaigns um, that we work on, was actually launched to bring attention to just one facet of Israeli occupation, which is the detention and prosecution of Palestinian children aged between 12 and 18 years old in Israeli military courts. Human rights organizations and relief organizations like UNICEF, Human Rights Watch, Defense for Children, International Palestine, Amnesty International, B'Tselem, all these organizations have documented for years the widespread and systematic ill-treatment and torture of Palestinian children by the Israeli army. Since 1967, Israel has operated two separate legal systems in the same territory. So in the occupied West Bank, Israeli settlers um, are subject to civilian and criminal legal system, whereas Palestinians living in the same territory live under military law. So in the West Bank, 45% of the population are children under the age of um, 18. And since the year 2000, an estimated 10,000 children have been detained by the Israeli authorities. Documentation shows a pattern where children typically arrive to Israeli interrogation bound, blindfolded, frightened, and sleep deprived. As in over half of the cases, children are taken from their homes by the Israeli army in the middle of the night. Children often give confessions after verbal abuse, threats, physical and psychological violence that in some cases amounts to torture. Children are routinely held in solitary confinement for interrogation purposes to psychologically break and coerce them into confessing. Israeli military law provides no legal right to uh, legal counsel during interrogation and the Israeli military court judges seldom exclude confessions obtained by coercion or torture. Military courts have a 99% conviction rate. We believe these practices are no way to treat a child, thus the name of our campaign. Uh, we work to influence audiences and decision makers in an effort to end Israeli military occupation and secure a just and viable future for Palestinian children. We believe that all children should have rights in accordance with the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child and other international standards. Specifically, 
lastly, with again the Palestinian activism program we have, I think you mentioned having another petition for the Gaza Unlock. And would you mind to speak a little more about that? Sure. Um, so the Gaza Unlock campaign is a campaign that um, AFSC launched a few years ago in the southwestern part of historic Palestine. It's an ancient city with so much history and so much rich traditions and, and roots. In 1948, when the State of Israel was established, uh, many of those people were pushed to the Gaza area where they became refugees and they were banned from returning to lands that were controlled then by uh, the invading Israeli army. And um, as a result of that, we end up with the birth of uh, a region that we all know today as the Gaza Strip, which is a strip of land, the only remaining strip of land from the Palestinian coast that wasn't conquered by Israel in 1948. The Gaza Strip is constitutes 1% of the total area of historic Palestine. And when I say historic Palestine, I mean the area that includes what is today Israel, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. And the Gaza Strip today is inhabited by 2.2 million people. When we think of both numbers, the number of the population and the geographical area of this region, the first thing that comes to mind is how densely populated, most densely populated areas around the world. Since 1948, 70% uh, of the population of the Gaza Strip have been refugees, uh, some of whom their lands, their property, their houses are just across the eastern fence that separates Gaza from Israel within walking distance, but they can't go back. In 1967, the Gaza Strip fell under Israeli occupation, where Israel, Israel's military invaded Gaza, stayed there and ruled uh, directly. And uh, it's, uh, it's still under Israeli occupation, although there is no direct military presence within Gaza. Israel still controls Gaza's sky, borders, airspace, sea, uh, crossings. It controls who gets in and gets out, and so on and so forth. In 2007, after Palestinians held an elections um, that the international community wasn't satisfied with its results, the international community and Israel imposed sanctions and placed the Gaza Strip under a brutal blockade. The blockade affects every aspect of people's lives. So for example, when I lived in Gaza, we had eight hours of electricity a day. Uh, more than 60% of the population in Gaza lives under poverty line or depends fully on international aid to secure basic needs such as food. The entire infrastructure has been in ruins. You know, we're talking about uh, an area that has witnessed three major military operations just in the past uh, 13 years. And those were very brutal military operations that led to the deaths of thousands of Palestinians who were killed by Israeli bombardment and by Israeli fire. Travel in and outside of the Gaza Strip is very, very difficult. You know, any person, most, a lot of people can just book a ticket, fly to Israel, 
to the Ben Gurion Airport in Israel, except for Palestinians. So it's a very it's a very difficult situation. We're talking about the isolation of two million people. It's 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 a shame. It's a shame that policy of collective punishment, uh, man-made blockade that deprives people of their basic rights, is something that is acceptable and uh, is something that happens in in the 21st century. For that reason, we have the Gaza Unlocked campaign. Um, so the Gaza Unlocked campaign is a campaign that aims at raising awareness and hopefully in the future shifting policies and building enough pressure uh, on policymakers, on governments, on stakeholders who are involved in, the, in this political question to end the collective punishment of Palestinians in Gaza and Palestinians in general. If you go to GazaUnlock.org, it's the website for our campaign, you can see that we provide many resources, fact sheets. Uh, we also recently created a, a uh, an essay booklet based on a competition that we did in Gaza where we asked young people 18 to 24 to contribute with short stories about what their lives are like under blockade, who, by the way, wrote in English and it was a really beautiful process. We received more than 42 stories, and we really struggled to choose the best 12. Go to GazaUnlock.org and download the uh, essay booklet for free and, and learn about the experiences. Well, thank you again to both of you, Jihad and Jennifer, for really explaining to us the meaning behind this free Palestine hashtag, then it's more than just a hashtag. There's serious legal, economic, sociopolitical, and cultural ramifications going on. And it's heartbreaking to hear these stories because Palestinians truly deserve so much better and so much more, especially on these universal, basic human rights. And now I'd like to ask if you would be delighted to share any of your first-hand personal uh, stories, whether it be witnessing, living the experience, or finding out about the consequent impacts of this Israeli occupation in Palestine. Absolutely. I mean, as I mentioned, um, I lived in, in Gaza for most of my life. Violence is a, is a daily story. And sometimes, uh, you know, when I think about now that I'm here in the U.S., uh, I have the ability to take a step back and reflect uh, on what my life looked like there. When you live in a in a place where you have access to four to six hours of electricity a day, when you live in a place where you have to count how many showers you can take per week, when you live in a place where um, water is not guaranteed or water can get you sick because it's polluted when you live in a place where if you get a scholarship like i did and having just to, to do something like applying for a u.s visa right which required a trip to jerusalem that if there was no occupation would take an hour and a half two hours but i had to spend months waiting for an israeli permit just to get a one-day permit for seven hours, just to go to the American embassy in Jerusalem, do the interview, and go back to Gaza same day. That in itself took six months just to get a one-day permit. When you think about people who have who have cancer, right, and who need medical treatment outside of Gaza, 
and who are put on very long waiting lists. When you think about, you know, the campaign my colleague Jennifer mentioned about children who are being arrested in the middle of the night by invading soldiers and barking dogs who are taken to detention uh, centers and interrogated in, in a language that they don't speak and are traumatized. The, the combination of all these details uh, uh, make you know make the the entire experience of people who live in Palestine a violent one. Uh, one story that I can never forget, one experience that I can never ever forget, was when on December 27, 2008, it was a Saturday at 11:43 a.m. Gaza time. I was about to step out of my uh, college uh, department building and on my on my way out uh, I just submitted my written assignment because you know electricity you can't really do that online you can't have a reliable online system at least then um, as I was about to leave the building the earth started to shake the glass started to shatter i thought it was an earthquake i rushed outside the building and i look around me and i saw these pillars of fire and cloud uh, rising from every corner around me and then i hear these very strong uh, explosions in and i looked around you know the smoke the fire and everything in that moment, uh, there was a police graduation, Palestinian police graduation ceremony just across the street. And in that moment, more than 150 people were killed. And as I was trying to run for my life with my, you know, like friends from school, uh, we were seeing the survivors coming out of that police compound that was just hit. And, you know, we were seeing people with like ashes and and blood and so on. That was an unforgettable day in my life. The The war continued for 21 days afterwards. It took the lives of 1,400 people. There, there were many uncertain things about that experience, but the only certain thing was that one could die at any moment. And that was just, you know, a day I, I was very excited about. I was planning to have coffee with my, you know, like classmates from school after we submit our assignments and just, you know, go home at the end. Stayed, I would have stayed alive. But this is just one experience. And it leaves, it, it really leaves its impact It's for the, on you for the rest of your life. It changes you. Some people... It changes you for the best or for the worst. You know, I the lesson I took from that experience was that someone has got to do something about about the situation. Someone has got to do something and change the reality and prevent things like that from happening again. Other people, of course, you know, they're left with wounds that are really hard to, to, to heal and recover. And to add insult to injury, people my generation in Gaza, older and younger, had to witness two additional military operations, one in 2012 and one in 2014, that exceeded any other thing that people have known in terms of its intensity and the amount of firepower that has been. So these experiences continue. These experiences will not stop unless we take action, unless we um, do something about what's happening. Thank you again, Jihad, for that courageous sharing of your story. And 
Now, finally, after everything that you've both shared, I'd like to ask one last question. What is the key message that you would want our audience to take away from this podcast? Well, I'll take a stab at that. I mean, just hearing Jihad's story and, um, you know, having having the privilege of all of us to be a witness to the suffering of Palestinians, I think that should motivate us to figure out ways that we can talk about Palestine. Um, we, I mentioned that uh, there are children held in solitary confinement. Uh, right now, there is a petition uh, to Prime Minister uh, Trudeau in Canada and also to uh, new President Biden Um, calling on them to demand that Israel stop uh, using solitary confinement against Palestinian children. The kind of repercussions that that has of of being detained and not having your rights met, it, it has lasting, you know, lasting effect on entire society and, and children. So we, we hope that on the nowaytotreatachild.org, if you go to that website, You can see that there are two petitions, one about solitary confinement and another about um, uh, about children during um, COVID. We haven't talked about COVID, but um, in the news this month, um, there's been a, a lot of conversation about the great work that Israel is doing to vaccine um, its citizens uh, in Israel. Um, the part of the story that isn't being told is how those vaccines and healthcare is being denied to the Palestinians. So I, I hope that all of our listeners today will really make an effort to learn more, to hear more stories and, and to take what you learn and try to educate others. So I appreciate that we um, were able to join you today. from the bottom of our hearts thank you so much jennifer and jihad for sharing with us your valuable wisdom expertise and narratives on this current situation going on in palestine thank you so much for giving us this wonderful opportunity Hey everyone, my name is Erin Humphreys. I am one of two events coordinators for WUSC, and today I will be discussing how this topic connects to WUSC's work. The first question is, what is WUSC's connection to Palestine? WUSC works in partnership with international organizations such as the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees in the Near East, which manages a formal Palestinian refugee camp heavily populated by Palestinians. WUSC also identified that consequent to this forced displacement, race and gender-based discrimination and financial constraints are just some of the factors why Palestinian refugees, especially young women, can't pursue higher education. Their lack of documents certifying legal national status acts as a barrier to accessing education and contributes to their low university enrollment. Therefore, WUSC first introduced the Student Refugee Program to the Middle East in 1984, 
where they continue to aid youth in urgent need of a durable solution for resettlement and opportunities to continue their post-secondary studies. The second question is, what is WUSC's perspective of the Gaza Unlock situation? For over a decade, two million Palestinians in Gaza have lived under a military blockade imposed by Israel. The blockade has especially hurt the educational prospects of students of all ages in Gaza. Thousands of college-age students are barred from finishing their education because they are denied permission to leave Gaza to study elsewhere. Gaza is facing school shortages, which is forcing nearly all public schools to hold two shifts each day, cutting students' learning time in half. Israel has banned the import of school supplies such as textbooks, pencils, lab equipment, computers, and paper into Gaza. Over 160,000 children in Gaza are estimated to be in need of continued psychological support, which impacts education. Since WUSC is not a humanitarian aid relief organization, WUSC works towards addressing and aiding refugees, youth, and women. can aid these refugees who seek employment through training or education through the Student Refugee Program. WUSC The third question is, what is WUSC's perspective on the children of Palestine? The children of Palestine have been affected in a number of ways, including witnessing violence around their homes, attacks against schools, and a fear of being killed themselves. Palestine also faces a socioeconomic crisis, with poverty on the rise and children dropping out of school at younger ages. National responses from the Palestinian government lack the resources to protect children and thus are reliant on international support. Palestinian children are also subject to harassment and mistreatment from the Israeli government, with children ages 12 to 17 being detained by the Israeli military forces. As children are a vulnerable target, their possibilities of having access to a lawyer is next to impossible. WUSC recognizes that many challenges youth face including poverty, socioeconomic crisis, and war-stricken environments. A huge focus in WUSC's work is providing a right to education, economic opportunities, and empowerment, creating a better future for youth, especially young women and refugees. The fourth and last question is, how does the crisis in Palestine affect WUSC's work? WUSC works to ensure youth from around the world receive opportunities to, to secure a good quality of life for themselves, their families, and community. Such opportunities are what can help Palestinian youth grow while also aiding to build the Palestinian economy. Thank you all so much for listening to our podcast, and I hope you all have an amazing day.